In this episode of Story Hour, I'm going to be reading book two of the Iliad. I previously read book one. This is book two. It's called A Dream, A Testing, and the Catalog of Ships. I hope you guys enjoy. The other gods and all the fighting men slept through the night, but there was no such soothing sleep for Zeus. He was wondering how to honor Achilles and have the Greeks slaughtered in multitudes by their ships. He decided that the best way would be to send Agamemnon, son of Atreus, a destructive dream. So he spoke to one with winged words, Go, destructive dream, to the Greek ships. Go to Agamemnon in his hut and repeat to him exactly what I say. Tell him to prepare his long-haired Greeks for battle at once. His chance of capturing the Trojans' town with its broad streets has come. The immortals that live on Olympus are no longer divided on that issue. Hera's entreaties have brought us all around, and the Trojans' fate is sealed. So he spoke, and the dream heard his instructions and left. It was soon at the Greek ships where it sought out Agamemnon and found him lying fast asleep in his hut. Assuming the appearance of Nestor, son of Neleus, Agamemnon's most valued advisor, it stood over his head and said, You sleep, son of the wise horse-tamer Atreus. It is not right for one in authority who has an army in his charge, a man with much on his mind, to sleep all night. Listen to me now and understand that I come from Zeus, who, far off as he is, is much concerned on your behalf and pities you. He tells you to prepare your long-haired Greeks for battle at once. Your chance of capturing the Trojans' town with its broad streets has come. The immortals that live on Olympus are no longer divided on that issue. Hera's entreaties have brought them all around, and the Trojans' fate is sealed by Zeus. Remember what I have said and do not forget it when you emerge from sweet sleep. With these words, the dream went off, leaving Agamemnon with a false picture of the future in his mind. He imagined he would capture Priam's town that very day, the fool. He little knew what Zeus intended, nor all the sufferings and sorrows he had in store for both sides in the heat of battle. When he woke from his sleep, the divine voice was all about him. He sat up, got to his feet, and put on a fine, soft, new-made tunic, and over that a great cloak. He bound a fine pair of sandals on his gleaming feet slung a silver riveted sword round his shoulders, picked up his ancestral, indestructible scepter, and with this in his hand walked down to the ships of the bronze-armored Greeks. When the goddess Dawn reached High Olympus, announcing the new day to Zeus and the other gods, Agamemnon ordered his clear-voiced heralds to summon the long-haired Greeks to assembly. The heralds cried their summons, and the warriors quickly gathered. But first Agamemnon arranged a council of his senior advisors beside the ship of Nestor, Lord of Pylos, and when he had called them together, he outlined his carefully considered plan. Friends, I was visited in my sleep by a dream from the gods which came to me through a mortal night, and in its appearance, size, and physique, it looked very similar to God like Nestor. It stood above my head and instructed me as follows. You sleep, son of the wise horse-tamer Atreus. It is not right for one in authority who has an army in his charge, a man with much on his mind, to sleep all night. Listen to me now and understand that I come from Zeus, who, far off as he is, is much concerned on your behalf and pities you. He tells you to prepare your long-haired Greeks for battle at once. Your chance of capturing the Trojan towns with its broad streets has come. The immortals that live on Olympus are no longer divided on that issue. Hera's entreaties have brought them all around, and the Trojans' fate is sealed by Zeus. Remember what I have said. With that, it flew away, and I woke up. To work, then. We must get the troops under arms. But first, as is my right, I am going to test them by a speech in which I shall tell them to take their many bent ships and sail for home. You may dissuade them from all sides. With these words, Agamemnon sat down, and Nestor, who was lord of Sandy Pylos, got up. He had their interest at heart as he rose and addressed them. 
Friends, rulers, and leaders of the Greeks, if any other Greek had told us of a dream like this, we should have thought it false and distanced ourselves from it. But as it is, the man who claims to be the best of the Greeks saw it. To work then, we must get the troops under arms. With these words, he moved off, signaling the end of the meeting. The other sceptered lords stood up after Nestor and followed the example of this shepherd of the people, and the army hurried forward as troops of swarming bees do, streaming out in relays from a hollow rock. The bees fly in clusters towards the spring flowers and settle in swarms, some here, some there. So the many troops of men marched in squads from their ships and huts in front of the wide seashore to the assembly. And now the assembly became the scene of turmoil. As they sat down, the ground groaned beneath their weight, and above the pandemonium the shouting of nine heralds could be heard, calling them to come to order, stop the din, and pay attention to their Olympian-bred leaders. When after some difficulty the troops were brought to order in their seats and had settled down and stopped their chatter, Lord Agamemnon rose holding a scepter, which Hephaestus himself had made. Hephaestus gave it to the Lord Zeus, son of Cronus, and Zeus to Hermes, the guide and slayer of Argus. Lord Hermes presented it to Pelops, the great charioteer, and Pelops passed it on to Atreus, shepherd of the people. When Atreus died, he left it to Thaestes, rich in flocks, and he in turn left it to Agamemnon to carry, to be a token of his lordship over many islands in all Argos. Leaning on the scepter, he spoke to the Greeks. Friends, Greek warriors, servants of the war god Ares, Zeus, son of Cronus, has seriously deluded me, a crushing blow. The perverse god once solemnly assured me that we would sack Ilium with its fine walls and return home, but now his advice turns out to be an evil deception, and he is telling me to return home to Argos in disgrace, with half of my army lost. It appears that this is... What almighty Zeus, who has brought down the high towers of many a town and will destroy others yet, has decided, such is his absolute power. But what a scandal! What a tale for our descendants' ears, that such a large and excellent force as ours should be engaged so ineffectually, with no final end in sight, in an unsuccessful struggle with a weaker enemy. If we and the Trojans swore a solemn truce, and each side held account, the enemy reckoning only native Trojans and we Greeks, numbering often tens, with the idea that each of our groups should have a Trojan to pour out its wine, many a group would go without a wine steward. Such I believe to be the odds we enjoy against the Trojans in the town itself. But they have numerous spear-wielding allies from many towns, who thwart me at every turn and defeat all my efforts to sack prosperous Ilium. Nine of great Zeus's years have now passed. The timbers of our ships have rotted, and their rigging has perished. Our wives and little children sit at home and wait for us. Meanwhile, the task we set ourselves when we came here remains undone, so I suggest we all do what I now propose. Board ship and home to the land of fathers. The Trojan's town with its broad streets will never fall to us. So he spoke, and his words went straight to the heart of every man in that crowd, except those who had attended the advisory council. And the whole assembly was swayed like the great rollers of the Icarian Sea when they are swollen by a southeaster rushing down from Father Zeus's clouds. As the west wind rushes tumultuously down to sway a deep harvest of corn, and the ears of corn bend under it, so the whole assembly was swayed. They charged, shouted for the ships. The dust they kicked up with their feet hung high overhead. They shouted to each other to get hold of the ships and drag them down into the bright sea. They began clearing out the ship's runways. They even started shifting the props from under the holes, and in their desire to be off, made a din that reached the sky. Greeks would have returned home in defiance of destiny if Hera had not spoken her mind to Athene. Athene, Artrione, daughter of Zeus who drives the storm cloud, this is a disaster. 
The Greeks will run away and sail home over the broad back of the sea to the land of their fathers, and leave Helen here for Priam and the Trojans to boast about. Helen, for whom so many of her countrymen have died on Trojan soil, far from their own fatherlands. But go down among these bronze-armored Greeks at once, and use your eloquence to stop them. Deal with them man by man. Don't let them drag the curved ships down into the sea. So she spoke, and the goddess gray-eyed Athene complied. She came swooping down from the heights of Olympus, and, soon reaching the Greek swift ships, found Odysseus, equal in invention to Zeus, rooted to the spot. He had not even touched his good black ship. He was in complete despair. Gray-eyed Athene went up to him and said, Olympian-born son of Laertes, resourceful Odysseus, are you all going to run off like this, falling aboard your many bent ship to get home to the land of your fathers, and leaving Helen here for Priam and the Trojans to boast about? Helen, for whom so many of her countrymen have died on Trojan soil, far from their own fatherland? Don't stay here any longer, but go down among the Greek army. Use your eloquence to stop them. Deal with them man by man. Don't let them drag the curved ships down into the sea. So she spoke, and he recognized the voice of the goddess and set out at a run, throwing off his cloak to be picked up by Eurybates, his Ithacan attendant. He went straight to Agamemnon, borrowed from him his indestructible ancestral scepter, and with this in his hand went down among the ships of the bronze-armored Greeks. When he came upon a lord and a man of rank, he would stand beside him and persuade him gently to stop. You there, it is not right to threaten you, you are no coward. But go back to your seat yourself and make the men do the same. You do not really know what Agamemnon has in mind. This is only an experiment with the men. He will soon take it out on them. Did we not all hear what he said at the council? He will be angry with the troops and may well punish them for this. Olympian-bred rulers have their pride, upheld in authority and championed as they are by Zeus' wise in council. When he saw any ordinary warrior shouting his companions on, he struck him with the scepter and yelled out orders at him. You there! Get back to your seat and wait for orders from your superiors. Coward and weakling, you count for nothing in battle or council. We cannot all be leaders here, and mob rule is a bad thing. Let there be one commander only, one ruler, who is given the scepter of power and the right to rule by Zeus, son of sickle-wielding Cronus. So Odysseus acted, asserting his authority over the army, and now they all flock back to the assembly from their ships and huts with a noise like the waves of the sounding sea, which thunder along the length of a beach when the deep lifts up its voice. They all sat down and were brought to order in their places, but for one man who refused to hold his tongue, this was Thersites, who loved the sound of his own voice and had a large store of insulting language at his disposal. He used this gratuitously and offensively to needle his masters whenever he thought it would raise a laugh among the troops. He was the ugliest man that had come to Ilium. He was bandy-legged and limped. His hunched shoulders almost met across his chest, and his head rose to a point where a few short hairs sprouted. Nobody loathed the man more than Achilles and Odysseus, since he was always abusing them, but now it was against godlike Agamemnon that he aimed a shrill torrent of insults. The Greeks felt nothing but anger or resentment at him. Shouting at the top of his voice, he directed an abusive lecture at Agamemnon. Son of Atreus, what are you blaming us for now? What more do you want? Your houses are full of bronze, and since we Greeks always give you first choice when we plunder a town, you have the pick of any number of women too. Maybe you are short of gold. A ransom with some horse-taming Trojan will come along with from the town a free son of his who has been tied up and brought in by myself and another of my men. Or a new girl for you to sleep with and keep all to yourself, though it is not right for you as our leader to create trouble for the army like this. For you, my feeble friends, disgraces that you are, Greek women, I cannot call you men. Let's sail for home anyway and leave this man here in Troy to brood over his prizes all by himself. He'll soon find out how much he depends on us. 
why only a little while ago he dishonored Achilles, a far better man than he is. He took his prize, removed her in person, and now has her for himself. But Achilles hasn't lost his temper. He is relaxed about it. Otherwise, Agamemnon, that outrage would have been your last. So spoke Thersites, abusing Agamemnon, shepherd of the people. But godlike Odysseus was quickly at his side and, looking blackly at him, attacked him and taught him a sharp lesson. Thersites, what a brilliant speaker you are, of pure drivel. Hold your tongue and stop arguing with your leaders. No one else does. In my view, you are the worst of all the Greeks that followed the sons of Atreus to Ilium, so you had better stop criticizing and hurling insults at them with an eye to getting home. Nobody here knows exactly how this business will end. We may return in triumph, we may not, but all you do is sit there and insult Agamemnon, son of Atreus, shepherd of the people, for the generosity the Greek warriors show him. Your speech was one long sneer. But I tell you bluntly, and I mean it, if I catch you once again acting as mindlessly at this, let my head be parted from my shoulders, and Telemachus be called no son of mine. If I don't get my hands on you, strip you of your clothes, the cloak and tunic that cover your genitals, thrash you, throw you out of the assembly under an ignominious hail of blows, and send you blubbering back to the ships. So he spoke, and struck him on the back and shoulders with the scepter. Thersites cowered and burst into tears. A bloody bruise raised by the gold-studded scepter swelled up on the man's back. He sat down, terrified and in pain, looked helplessly around, and brushed away a tear. The others, disgruntled though they were, had a good laugh at him. They looked at each other and said as one man, Well done. There's many a fine thing to Odysseus's credit, what with his brilliant ideas and leadership in battle. But shutting up that ranting windbag in the assembly is by far the best thing he has done for us. I don't think the great Thersites will be in a hurry to come here again and sling abuse and insults at our leaders. So the gathering spoke, and now Odysseus, sacker of towns, rose to speak with the scepter in his hand. Grey-eyed Athene disguised herself as a herald stood beside him and called the assembly to order, so that the Greeks at the back as well as the front could hear his speech and consider his advice. Odysseus had their interest at heart as he rose and addressed them. Lord Agamemnon, it seems the Greeks are determined to turn you into an object of contempt before all mankind and to break the promise they made you on the voyage here from horse-grazing Greece, that you would never sail home till you had sacked Ilium with its fine walls, the way they whimpered to each other about getting back. They might be little children or widowed wives. Not that I deny that our efforts here are enough to send any man away frustrated. A sailor on board his ship will start to get restless when winter gales and rising seas have cooped him up in harbor and kept him from his wife for even a month, but we have hung on here for nine long years. Small blame, then, if the troops are getting restless by the ships. Yet, it would be humiliating, after staying here for so long, to return home empty-handed. Be patient, my friends. Hold out a little longer, till we find out whether our priest Calchas prophesies the truth or not. We all know what I mean. In fact, you all saw the thing for yourselves, those whom the demons of death have not since come to carry away. It seems like only yesterday, the Greek ships were gathering at Aulis, ready to bring trouble to Priam and the Trojans. We were making perfect sacrifices to the gods on their holy altars around a spring around a fine plane tree at the foot of which the sparkling water was gushing out when a great sign appeared. A snake with blood-red markings on its back, an intimidating creature which Olympian Zeus himself had released into the light of day, darted out from below an altar and made straight for the tree. There was a brood of young sparrows on the highest branch, helpless little things nestling under the leaves, eight birds in all, or nine, counting the mother of the hatch. All of them, chirping piteously and with their mother fluttering round and wailing for her dear children, were eaten by the snake. It got the mother too. It coiled itself up to strike and seized her by the wing as she flew past shrieking. But when it had devoured them all, mother and young, the god who had caused it to appear, Zeus, son of sickle-wielding Cronus, transformed it and turned it into a stone. 
We stood there transfixed by what had happened. But when this awe-inspiring prodigy had introduced on our sacrifice, Calchas interpreted the omen then and there. Why are you silent, you long-haired Greeks? It was for us that Zeus' wise in council staged this prophetic scene. It was late in coming and will be late in fulfillment, but its glorious memory will not die. There were eight young sparrows, making nine with their mother, and all of these, mother and hatch, were devoured by the snake. Nine, then, is the number of years we shall have to fight over Ilium, and in the tenth its broad streets will be ours. That is what Calchas prophesied, and all he said is coming true. So you, Greek men-at-arms, you must all stand your ground till we capture Priam's great town. So he spoke, and the Greeks thundered out loud to show how well they had liked the speech from godlike Odysseus. Their intimidating roar echoed round the ships. Then Nestor, the Gerenian charioteer, addressed them too. Well, you might be little children with no interest in war at all, to judge by all this talk. What will become of our agreements and oaths? You may as well throw on the fire all our plans and strategies, all our pledges sealed in wine, our right hands in which we place such trust. Words are the only weapons we are using now, and given how long we have been here, they will get us nowhere. Agamemnon, be true as always to your firm resolve, and lead the Greeks into the thick of the action. If there are one or two traitors among us, scheming to sail for home before they find out whether Zeus was telling us the truth, let them rot. They will not succeed. For I am convinced that Zeus, the almighty son of Cronus, nodded his approval of us on the day we got aboard our swift ships, to bring death and destruction to the Trojans. There was a flash of lightning on our right, a sign that all would be well. Let there be no scramble to get home, then, till every man of you has slept with a Trojan wife and taken revenge for all the sweat and tears Helen has caused you. But if anyone does have a violent urge to be off, he has only to touch his well-benched black ship, and as far as everyone else is concerned, he will be ensuring his own death and destiny. Now, my lord, think things over carefully and take advice from another. Here is my own. It is not to be put aside lightly. Sort your men out, Agamemnon, into their tribes and clans, so that clan helps clan and the tribes support each other. If you do this and the Greeks comply, you will find out who are the cowards and who the brave among your commanders and troops. For each man will be fighting at his brother's side, and you will soon find out whether it is the god's will that stands between you and the sack of Ilium, or the cowardice of your warriors and their incompetence in battle. Lord Agamemnon replied and said, One more debate where you, venerable sir, have carried all before you. Father Zeus, Athena, and Apollo, give me ten such advisors as Nestor, and the town of Lord Priam would soon be captured, sacked, and turned over to Greek hands. But Zeus, who drives the storm cloud, the son of Cronus, will torment me. He entangles me in pointless bickering and rows. Look at the way Achilles and I quarreled and exchanged insults over a girl, though it was I who lost my temper first. If ever he and I see eye to eye once more, there will be no stay of execution for the Trojans, not for the moment. Now let us eat and prepare ourselves for battle. Sharpen your spears, adjust your shields, see that your horses are fed, check your chariots and be ready to battle it out grimly all day. There will be no respite, not for a moment, till night comes and separates the forces. The strap of a man's shield will be soaked with the sweat from his chest, his hand will weary on his spear, his horses pulling at his polished chariot will be covered in lather. And as for anyone I see who prefers to loiter by the beak ships far from battle, nothing can save him. He was for the dogs and the birds. So he spoke, and the Greeks thundered out loud, like a wave against the rocky promontory of a high headland where the south wind descends and whips up the seas. The waves raised by winds from all quarters never leave it in peace from any direction. They rose from the assembly at once and dispersed among the ships, where they lit fires in their huts and fed. Each man, as he sacrificed to one of the immortal gods, prayed that he might come through the grind of battle with his life. Agamemnon, lord of men, himself sacrificed a fatted five-year-old ox to Zeus, almighty son of Cronus, and invited the senior advisors of the Greeks to attend. Nestor first of all, 
then Lord Idomeneus, the two Ajaxes, Diomedes son of Tydeus, and for his sixth, Odysseus, equal in invention to Zeus. Menelaus, master of the battle cry, came without needing an invitation, since he knew very well how heavy his brother Agamemnon's burden was. Standing round the ox, they took up the sacrificial grains. Lord Agamemnon addressed them and prayed, Zeus, greatest and most glorious, god of the black cloud, dwelling in the skies, grant that the sun may not set and darkness fall before I bring Priam's smoke-blackened palace crashing down, send his gates up in flame and rip the tunic on Hector's chest, and at his side let many of his friends fall and bite the dust. So he spoke, but Zeus did not grant his prayer. He accepted the offering, but in return doubled his load of misery. When they had made their prayers and thrown the grain over the victim, they first drew back the animal's head and slit its throat and skinned it. Then for the god's portion, they cut out the thigh bones, wrapped them in folds of fat, and laid raw meat from the rest of the animal above them. These pieces they burnt on spits stripped of leaves, then pierced the entrails and held them over the flames. When the god's portion had been consumed by fire, they ate the offal, and then carved the rest of the victim into small pieces, pierced them with skewers, roasted them carefully, and drew them all off. When their work was done and the meal prepared, they feasted and no one went without a fair share. Their hunger and thirst satisfied, Nestor the Gerenian charioteer began and spoke his mind to them. Most glorious son of Atreus, Agamemnon lord of men, let us not prolong this meaning any more, nor put off work that the god has set our hands to. Come, let the heralds of the bronze-armored Greeks gather the troops from the ships for battle. Then we could go round the whole Greek army together and soon unleash the dogs of war. So he spoke, and Agamemnon lord of men complied. He gave immediate orders to his clear-voiced heralds to call the long-haired Greeks to battle stations. They cried their summons, and the men quickly gathered. The Olympian-bred lords under Agamemnon bustled about, marshalling the troops, and with them went gray-eyed Athene. She was holding her splendid cloak, the unfading, everlasting aegis from which a hundred golden tassels flutter, all beautifully woven, each worth a hundred head of cattle. Darting about with this, she raced through the ranks, urging the men forward and filling the heart of every Greek with the courage to do battle and fight the enemy relentlessly. At once the prospect of battle became sweeter to them than returning in their hollow ships to the land of their fathers. As destructive fire ravages a great forest on the mountain heights, and the glint of the flames is seen from far away, so as they fell in, the dazzling glitter of their magnificent bronze armor flashed through the air to the skies. Like the many flocks of birds, geese, cranes, or long-necked swans that gather in the Asian meadow by the streams of Caister and wheel around here and there, reveling in their flight, and with a great racket spread out over the grounds, and the meadow is filled with sound. So the many groups poured from their ships and their huts onto the plain of the river's commander, and the earth beneath resounded intimidatingly to the tramp of marching men and horses' hooves, as they took their positions in the flowery meadow of Scamander, countless, as many as the leaves and flowers in their season. Like the many groups of busy flies that swarm around the sheepfold in spring, when the milk splashes the pails, so many long-haired Greeks were drawn up to the plain against the Trojans, determined to smash through them. Like goatherds who easily sort out their wandering flocks of goats when they have become mixed up at a pasture, so the commanders deployed men here and there to advance to battle, and in among them moved Lord Agamemnon, with head and eyes like those of Zeus who delights in thunder, with a waist like the war gods, and a chest like Poseidon's, like a bull that stands out clearly from all the cattle in a herd, conspicuous among the assembled cows, so Zeus made Agamemnon look that day, conspicuous among the crowd and eclipsing all the warriors. Tell me now, you muses that live on Olympus, since you are goddesses, are present everywhere and know everything, while we men have only hearsay to go on and know nothing. Tell me who were the leaders and commanders of the Greeks. 
As for the rank and file, I could not name or even count them, not if I had ten tongues and ten mouths, a voice that could never tire in a heart of bronze, unless you, muses of Olympus, daughters of Zeus who drives the storm cloud, remind me how many came to Ilium, so I shall list the captains and their ships from first to last. Now you tell me, muse, of all the men and horses that crossed with Agamemnon and Menelaus, which were by far the best. Of the horses, the best by far were the mares of Admetus, which his son Eumelus drove. Swift as birds, they were alike in coat and age and of exactly equal height. These mares had been reared in Perea by Apollo, lord of the silver bow, to strike panic in the ranks. Of the men, Ajax, son of Telamon, was by far the best, but only while Achilles was in a rage since he, Matchless son of Peleus, was the finest man of all and drove the finest horses. But he was lying now by his seafaring beak ships, nursing his implacable anger against Agamemnon, son of Atreus, shepherd of the people. Meanwhile on the beach his men amused themselves with archery and throwing discuses and spears. The horses stood idle, each by its own chariot, munching clover and parsley from the marsh. Their master's chariots lay covered up inside their huts, and the men themselves, who missed their war-loving chief, strolled aimlessly about the camp and did no fighting. The Greeks advanced as if fire was grazing over the whole land, earth groaned beneath them, as it does when Zeus, who delights in thunder, is angry and lashes the ground above the giant Typhius in the Aramean mountains, where people say Typhius sleeps. So the earth groaned loudly under the feet of marching men as they advanced at speed across the plain. The messenger goddess Swift Iris, quick as the wind, was sent to the Trojans by Zeus, who drives the storm cloud with the bad news. They had all gathered, young and old alike, in assembly at Priam's gates. Swift-footed Iris came up to them and spoke in a voice like that of Priam's son Polites, who because of his speed was posted as lookout for the Trojans on top of old Asites' tomb, waiting for an attack from the Greek ships. Swift-footed Iris spoke with his voice. Venerable sir, you are still as fond of interminable talk as you were in peacetime, but inescapable war is upon us. Indeed, I have taken part in many battles, but I have never seen so great and formidable a force. They are advancing over the plain to fight at the town, like the leaves of the forest or the sands of the sea. Hector, I urge you above all to do as I say. In this great town, Priam has many allies, but these scattered foreigners all speak different languages. Let their own commanders in each case issue orders to them, draw up their people, and lead them out to battle. So she spoke, and Hector did not fail to recognize the words of a goddess and immediately dismissed the assembly. They rushed to arms. The gates were all thrown open and the whole army charged out, foot soldiers and charioteers. The noise they made was tremendous. Outside the town and some way off in the plain, there is a high mound where open ground on every side, which men call Bramble Hill, but the immortals call the Tomb of Dancing Marine. It was here that the Trojans and the allies were marshaled for battle. Priam's son, great Hector of the Flashing Helmet, was in charge of the Trojans. With him marched by far the finest and most numerous force, keen spearmen, all of them. The Dardandians were led by Anchises' admirable son Aeneas, whom celestial Aphrodite conceived for Anchises, goddess sleeping with mortal, and the slopes of Mount Ida. Aeneas was not in sole command, but was supported by Antenor's two sons, Archilochus and Achamus, both experienced in every kind of fighting. The men that lived in Zelia, under the lowest spurs of Mount Ida, and drank the dark waters of Asippus, a prosperous Trojan clan, were led by the famous son of Lycaon, Pandarus, whose bow was a gift from Apollo himself. The men from Adrestia and the land of Aspeus, from Pitea and the steep slopes of Terea, were led by Adrestus and Amphius in his linen body protection, the two sons of Merops and Percote who was the ablest prophet of his day and had forbidden his sons to go off to the killing fields, but they would not listen to him. The demons of death led them on. The men who lived in Percote, Practius and Incestus, 
in Abydus and holy Erisbe, were commanded by Isaeus, son of Hercutus, leader of men, whom his big and glossy horses had brought from Erisbe beside the river Silius. Hippopathus was in command of the tribes of Pelasgian spearmen who lived in fertile Larissa. Hippopathus was joined in command by Peleus, ally of the war god. They were the two sons of Pelasgian Lethus, son of Teutimus. Acamas and the warrior Perius led the Thracians whose lands are bound by the swift-flowing Hellespont. Euphemus, son of Olympian-bred Trazinus, son of Cius, led the warlike Sinsones. Paracmes commanded the Paeonians with their curving bows. They had come from far, from Amadon and the banks of the broad river Axius, the Axius whose rivers are the most beautiful that flow over the earth. Manly Pilomenes led the Paphlagonians from the land of the Aneti, from which wild mules come. The Aneti lived in Sertorus, round Sesamon, in impressive homesteads by the river Parthenius, in Cromna, Aegeleus, and lofty Erythini. Odeus and Epistrophus led the Halizones from distant Albi, the native home of silver. Chromus and Enomus were in command of the Mysians. Enomus was an augur, but all his bird lore did not save him from the black hand of death. He fell a victim to swift-footed Achilles in the riverbed when he was making havoc of the Trojans and their allies. Forcus and godlike Ascanius led the Phrygians, eager for battle from remote Ascania. The Maeonians were led by Mestlis and Antiphus, the sons of Telemenes, whose mother was the Gygean Lake. These two led the Maeonians, whose native land is under Tmolus. Nastes led the Carinians, who did not speak Greek. They lived in Miletus, thickly wooded Mount Phyllus, the streams of Meander and Michaeli with a steep peak. These were the men whom Amphimachus and Nastes brought. Nastes and Amphimachus, the splendid sons of Nomion. Amphimachus went into battle decked in gold like a girl, the fool, not that it saved him from an ugly end. He fell to swift-footed Achilles, there in the riverbed, and warlike Achilles made off with the gold. Sarpedon and Matius Glaucus led the Lycians, from distant Lycia and eddying river Xanthus. Book 3. A Duel in a Trojan View of the Greeks When everyone had been drawn up, each contingent under its leader, the Trojans advanced with shrieks and cries like cranes which, screaming from the skies, fly from the onset of winter and its unnatural downpours. Shrieking, they make for the rivers of ocean to bring death and destruction to the pygmies, launching their wicked assault from the air. But the Greeks move forward in silence, breathing courage, filled with determination to stand by one another. As the south wind wraps a mist around the mountaintops, bad news for the shepherd, but better than night for a thief. And a man can see no farther than he can throw a stone. So dense a cloud of dust arose from their marching feet as they advanced at speed across the plain. When the armies had come within range of each other, godlike Paris stepped out from the Trojan ranks. He was decked out with a leopard skin on his back and a curved bow and a sword. Brandishing two bronze-headed spears, he challenged all the best of the Greeks to meet him face to face in mortal combat. When warlike Menelaus saw Paris striding towards him in front of the enemy ranks, he was as delighted as a lion that comes across a great carcass and finds it as an antlered stag or wild goat. He is starving and greedily devours it in spite of all the efforts of the quick dogs and strong young hunters to drive him off. So delighted was Menelaus when his eyes fell on godlike Paris, for he thought his chance had come of paying back the man who had wronged him. Fully armed, he immediately left from his chariot to the grounds. When godlike Paris saw Menelaus emerging through the front ranks, his heart failed him completely and he retreated into his own contingent of warriors to avoid death. Like a man who catches sight of a snake in a wooded ravine and sharply recoils, knees trembling and retreats, pale face, so godlike Paris disappeared back into the mass of proud Trojans, terrified of Menelaus, son of Atreus. Hector saw him and attacked him sharply. Paris, you parody with your wonderful looks, you sex-crazed seducer, 
You should never have been born or married. How I wish that were the case. Far better than that to be the disgrace you are now, trusted by nobody. How the long-haired Greeks must cackle when they see us make a champion of a man because of his good looks, not his strength of purpose or courage. Can you be the same man who picked a crew, crossed the waves and seafaring ships, mixed with foreigners and carried off a beautiful woman from a distant land and from a warrior family too, Helen, to be a scourge to your father, to the town and to the whole people, to cause our enemies to rejoice and you to hang your head in shame? And won't you now stand up to war like Menelaus? Then you would soon find out the kind of man he is whose luscious wife you stole. Your liar would not help you at all, nor Aphrodite's gifts, your lovely locks and pretty face when you mix with the dust. But the Trojans are too soft, otherwise you would have been stoned to death long ago for the trouble you have caused. God like Paris replied, Hector, your taunts are justified, nothing more than I deserve. Your heart is tireless, like an axe in the hands of a carpenter, hewing through the wood. The carpenter's skill shapes the ship timbers, but the axe gives him the strength he needs. So with you, your strength of purpose remains indomitable. But don't hold against me the irresistible gifts I have from golden Aphrodite. The glorious gifts which the gods themselves choose to lavish on a man are not to be despised. No man ever acquires them by his own efforts. But now, if you want me to do battle and fight, make the rest of the Trojans and all the Greeks sit down and let me in war like Menelaus meet in the middle to fight it out over Helen and all the property I brought back with her. The one who wins and proves himself the better man can take all the property and the woman home while you others can then swear solemn oaths of friendship with the enemy and remain in fertile Troy, while the Greeks return to horse-grazing Thessaly and Achaea with its lovely women. So he spoke, and Hector was delighted at his proposal, but stepped out into no man's land and, grabbing a spear by the middle, pushed the Trojan ranks back. They all sat down, but the long-haired Greeks began to shoot at him, making Hector the target for their arrows and stones. Then Agamemnon, lord of men, gave a great shout. Greeks, enough! Men, stop shooting! Hector of the flashing helmet looks as if he has something to say. So he spoke, and the troops abandoned their attack and immediately fell silent. Hector then spoke to both sides. Trojans and Greek men-at-arms, hear from me what Paris, who began this trouble between us, now proposes. He suggests the rest of the Trojans and all the Greeks ground their arms while he and warlike Menelaus meet in the middle and fight it out over Helen and all the property Paris brought back with her. The one who wins and proves himself the better man can take all the property and the woman home, while we others can then swear solemn oaths of friendship. So he spoke and was received in complete silence by them all. Then Menelaus, master of the battle cry, spoke to them. Listen now to me too. I am the chief sufferer here, but I intend the Greeks and Trojans to part in peace this day, having had quite enough to endure as a result of the dispute between me and Paris, who began it all. May the man who is marked out by death and destiny meet his end, and then the rest of you soon will be reconciled. You Trojans bring two sheep, a white ram and a black ewe, for the earth and the sun, and we will bring back another ram for Zeus. And let mighty Priam be fetched so that he can take the oaths himself, since he has arrogant and unscrupulous sons, and we do not want to see an oath in the name of Zeus wrecked by treachery. Young men are never dependable, but when an old man takes a hand in such affairs, he considers the future as well as the past, and the result is the best for both parties. So he spoke, and the Greeks and Trojans were delighted at the prospect of a reprieve from the painful business of fighting. They drew up their chariots and ranks, got down and removed their equipment, which they laid on the ground at close intervals. There was little open space left around. Hector dispatched two heralds at full speed to the town to fetch the sheep and summon Priam. Lord Agamemnon sent Telbithius off to the hollow ships and told him to bring back a lamb. Meanwhile, Iris, the messenger goddess, brought the news to white-armed Helen, disguising herself as Helen's sister-in-law, Laodice, the most beautiful of Priam's daughters, who was married to Lord Helicon and Tenor's son. 
She found Helen in the hall at work on a great web of purple cloth for folding double, into which she was weaving some of the many trials that the Trojans and Greeks had suffered for her sake at the hands of the war god Ares. Swift-footed Iris went up to her and said, My dear sister, come and see how strangely the Trojan and Greek warriors are behaving. A little while ago they were making war with all its tears against each other in the plain and looked as though they thought to fight each other to the death. But now the battle is off and they are sitting there in silence leaning on their shields, with their long spears stuck in the ground beside them, while Paris and warlike Menelaus are to fight a duel with their great spears, over you, the winners to claim you as his wife. With these words, the goddess filled Helen's heart with sweet longing for her former husband, her parents, and the town she had left. She immediately covered her head in a veil of white linen, and with soft tears running down her cheeks, set out from her room, not alone, but attended by two waiting women, Aether, daughter of Pythias, and Oxide Clemini. In a little while they reached the sand gate. At this gate, Priam was sitting in conference with the elders at the town Panthus and Thermidus, Lampus and Clytius, Hictaeon, servant of the war god Ares, and Ucalagon and Antenor, both sensible men. Old age had brought their fighting days to an end, but they were excellent speakers, these Trojan elders, sitting there on the tower like cicadas perched on a tree in the woods, trilling lightly away. When they saw Helen coming to the tower, they whispered winged words to each other. No one could blame the Trojans and Greek men-at-arms for suffering so long for such a woman's sake. She is fearfully like the immortal goddesses, all the same and lovely as she is. Let her sail home and not stay here, a scourge to us and our children after us. So they spoke, and Priam called out to Helen, Dear child, come here and sit in front of me, so that you can see your former husband and your relatives and friends. I don't hold you responsible for any of this, but the gods. It is they who brought on me this war against the Greek with all its tears. And now you can tell me the name of that awe-inspiring man over there, that fine tall Greek. There are certainly others who are taller, but I've never set eyes on a man so handsome and imposing. He looks every inch a leader. Helen, goddess among women, replied, I respect and admire you, my dear father-in-law. I wish I had chosen to die in misery before I came here with your son, deserting my bridal bed, my relatives, my darling daughter, and the dear friends with whom I had grown up. But things did not fall out like that, and so I spend my life in tears. Now I will tell you what you wish to know. The man you pointed out is Agamemnon, son of Atreus, a good ruler and a mighty spearman too. He was my brother-in-law once, wretched woman that I am, unless all that was a dream. So she spoke, and the old man gazed at Agamemnon in admiration and said, Happy son of Atreus, child of fortune, blessed by the gods. How many thousands of Greeks serve under you? I went to Phrygia once, land of vines, and there I saw numerous Phrygians with their galloping horses, and the armies of Otreus and godlike Migdon, all encamped by the banks of the river Sangarius. I was their ally and took my place among them that time, the Amazons, women who were matched for men, came up to the attack, but even they were not as numerous as these dark-eyed Greeks. The old man noticed Odysseus next and asked, Tell me now, dear child, who that man is. He is shorter than Agamemnon, but broader in the shoulders and chest. He has left his armor lying on the bountiful earth, and there he goes, like the leader of a flock, inspecting the ranks. He reminds me of a fleecy ram moving among a great flock of white sheep. Then Helen, child of Zeus, replied, That is quick-thinking Odysseus, son of Laertes. He was brought up on Ithaca, a rugged island, and is master of all kinds of maneuvers and strategies. Then sensible Antenor spoke in reply, Madame, you are quite right, I know, because godlike Odysseus once came here on a mission on your behalf with warlike Menelaus, and I was their host. I entertained them in my own palace, and got to know not only what they looked like, but how intelligent they thought. In assembly with the Trojans, when we were all standing, Menelaus with his broad shoulders was the taller, but Odysseus was the more imposing of the two when they were both seated. 
When their turn came to express their views in public, Menelaus spoke fluently, not a great length but very clearly, being a man of few words who kept to the point, though he was the younger of the two. By contrast, whenever quick-thinking Odysseus sprang up to speak, he stood there and looked up from under eyes firmly fixed on the grounds. He did not swing the speaker's staff either backwards or forwards but held it stiffly, as though he had never handled one before. You would have taken him from some surly or some stupid fellow, but when he liberated that great voice from his chest and poured out words like the snows of winter, there was no man alive who could compete with him. When we looked at him then, we were no longer surprised at the thought of his appearance. Ajax was the third man Priam noticed and asked, Who is that other fine tall Greek, head and shoulders above the rest? Helen of the long robes, goddess among women, replied, That is awe-inspiring Ajax, a tower of strength to the Greeks, and there next to him is Adamenius, standing among the Cretans like a god, with his Cretan captains gathered round him. Warlike Menelaus often used to entertain him in our house when he paid us a visit from Crete. Now I have picked out all the dark-eyed Greeks I can recognize a name except two commanders I cannot find, horse-taming Castor and the great boxer Pollux, my brothers, born by the same mother as myself. Either they did not join the army from lovely Lacedaemon, or they did arrive in their seafaring ships but are unwilling to take part in the fighting on account of the disgrace attached to my name and the many insults they might hear. So she spoke, but the life-giving earth already held them fast over there in Lacedaemon, in the dear land of their fathers. Heralds, meanwhile, were bringing through the town oath offerings for the gods, two sheep and a goatskin full of gladdening wine, the fruit of the soil. The herald, Idaeus, who carried a gleaming mixing bowl and golden cups, came up to Priam and roused him to action. Up, son of Lamedon, the commanders of the Trojans and Greek forces are calling for you to come down to the plain and swear a solemn oath. Paris and warlike Menelaus are going to fight it out with their spears for the woman. The winner will take the woman, property and all. We others can then swear oaths of friendship with the enemy and remain in fertile Troy, while the Greeks return to horse-gracing Thessaly and Achaia with its lovely women. So he spoke, and the old man shuddered. But he told his man to yoke the horses to his chariots, and they promptly complied. Priam mounted and held the horses steady on the reins, and Tenor got into the superb chariot beside him, and they drove their fast horses through the sand gate towards the plain. When they reached the assembled armies, they stepped down from the chariot onto the bountiful earth and walked to a spot between the Greeks and Trojans. Agamemnon, lord of men, and quick-thinking Odysseus rose at once, and noble heralds herded together the oath offerings for the gods, mixed wine in the bowl, and poured some water on their leader's hands. Then Agamemnon drew the knife that he always carried besides the great scabbard of his sword and cut some wool from the lamb's heads. The wool was distributed among the Trojan and Greek leaders by the heralds. Agamemnon then raised his hands and prayed aloud, Father Zeus, you that rule the Mount Ida, greatest and most glorious, and you the sun who see and hear everything, you rivers and you earth, and you powers of the world below that make the dead pay if they have sworn a false oath, I call on you to witness their solemn oaths and see they are kept. If Paris kills Menelaus, he is to keep Helen and all her property, and we shall sail away in our seafaring ships. But if auburn-haired Menelaus kills Paris, the Trojans must surrender Helen and all her property, and make the Greeks' compensation on scale that future generations shall remember. And if in the event of Paris's death, Priam and his sons refuse to meet this demand, I shall stay here and fight for satisfaction until the war is finished. He spoke slit the lambs throats with a relentless bronze and dropped them gasping on the grounds where life ebbed from them the knife had removed their spirit then they drew wine from the mixing bowl into cups and as they poured it on the ground they prayed to the immortal gods 
Greeks and Trojans said as one man, Zeus, greatest and most glorious, and you other immortal gods, may the brains of whichever party breaks this treaty be poured out on the ground as that wine is poured, and not only theirs but their children's twos, and other men possess their wives. So they spoke, but Zeus son of Cronus did not yet grant their prayers. Now Priam son of Dardanus addressed them, Hear me, Trojans and Greek men-at-arms, I am now going back to windswept Ilium, since I cannot bear to look on while my own dear son fights war like Menelaus. Zeus and the other immortal gods must know already which of the two is going to his doom. God, like Priam, spoke, put the lambs into the chariot, mounted himself, and held the horses steady on the reins. And Tenor got into the superb chariot beside him, and the two drove off on their way to Ilium. Hector, son of Priam, and god like Odysseus, proceeded to measure out the ground and then to place lots in a bronze helmet and shake them to see which of the two should throw his bronze spear first. The watching armies prayed with their hands raised to the gods. Greeks and Trojans said as one man, Father Zeus, you that rule from Mount Ida, greatest and most glorious, let the man who brought these troubles on both peoples die and go down to the house of Hades and let firm oaths of friendship be made. So they spoke, and now great Hector of the flashing helmet shook the helmet, averting his eyes. Paris's lot immediately leapt out. The troops then sat down in rows, each man by his high-stepping horses where his ornate armor lay. Then godlike Paris, husband of lovely-haired Helen, put on his magnificent armor. First he placed fine leg guards on his shins, fitted with silver ankle clips. Then he put on body armor. It belonged to his brother Lycaon, and fitted him too. Over his shoulder he slung a bronze, silver-riveted sword, then a great heavy shield. On his mighty head he placed a well-made helmet with a horsehair crest, the plume nodding frighteningly from the top. Then he took up a powerful spear that fitted his grip. Warlike Menelaus also armed in the same way, and when both had gotten themselves ready, each behind his front line, they strode out between the two forces, looking daggers. The Trojans and Greeks watched spellbound. The two men took up their positions not far from each other within the measured piece of ground and brandished their weapons in mutual fury. First Paris hurled his long-shadowed spear and it hit Menelaus' round shield, but it did not break through and the tip was bent back by the stout shield. Then Menelaus attacked with a spear with a prayer to Father Zeus, Grant me revenge, Lord Zeus, on God like Paris, the man who wronged me in the beginning. Use my hand to bring him down so that our children's children will still shudder at the thought of wronging a host who has offered them friendship. He spoke, balanced his long-shadowed spear, and hurled it. It hit Paris's round shield. The heavy weapon pierced the glittering shield, forced its way through the ornate body armor, and ripped right on through the side of Paris's tunic. But Paris had swerved and so avoided dark death. Menelaus then drew his silver-riveted sword, swung it back, and brought it down full on the ridge of his enemy's helmet. But the sword shattered on the helmet and fell in pieces from his hands. Menelaus gave a groan and looked up to the broad sky. Father Zeus, there's no god more spiteful than you. I thought I had paid Paris back for his wickedness, and now my sword breaks in my hands when I have already thrown my spear for nothing and never touched the man? He spoke and, hurling himself at Paris, seized him by the horsehair crest and, Turning him round, began to drag him back into Greek lines. Paris was choked by the pressure on his tender throat of the embroidered helmet strap, which he had tied tightly under his chin. And Menelaus would have hauled him off and won unutterable glory, but for the quickness of Aphrodite, daughter of Zeus, who saw what was happening and broke the strap made of leather from a slaughtered ox. So the helmet came away empty in Menelaus's clenched fist. The warrior swung it round and tossed it into Greek lines, where it was picked up by his loyal troops and launched himself at Paris again in the hope of killing him with his bronze spear. But Aphrodite hid Paris in a dense mist and whisked him away, an easy feat for an immortal, and put him down in his own perfumed fragrant bedroom. Then she went herself to summon Helen. Aphrodite found Helen on the high tower, surrounded by Trojan women. The goddess put out her hand, 
tugged at her sweet-smelling robe and spoke to her in the disguise of an old woman she was very fond of, a wool worker who used to comb the wool for Helen when she lived in Lacedaemon. Mimicking this woman, Celestial Aphrodite spoke to her. Come here. Paris wants you to go home to him. There he is in his bedroom, on the inlaid bed, dazzling in looks and dress. You would never believe he had just come in from a duel. You would think he was going to a dance, or had just stepped off the floor and sat down to rest. So she spoke, and her words went straight to Helen's heart. But when she noticed the superb neck, desirable breasts, and sparkling eyes of the goddess, she was shocked and spoke to her. Mysterious goddess, why are you trying to lead me on like this? You are plotting, I suppose, to carry me off to some more distant town. In Phrygia, or lovely Maonia, or some other favorite of yours who may be living in those parts? Or is it that Menelaus has beaten Paris and wants to take me back home, me, his loathsome wife, so now you have come here to try to lure me back to Paris? Now go and sit with him yourself. Forget you are a goddess. Never set foot on Olympus again, but go and agonize over Paris. Go and pamper him, and one day he may make you his wife, or his concubine. I refuse to go and share that man's bed again. It would be quite wrong. There's not a woman in Troy who would not blame me if I did. I have enough trouble to put up with already. In rage, celestial Aphrodite spoke to her. Obstinate wretch, don't get the wrong side of me, or I may desert you in my anger and detest you as vehemently as I have loved you up until now, and provoke Greeks and Trojans alike to such hatred of you that you would come to a dreadful end. So she spoke, and Helen, child of Zeus, was terrified. She wrapped herself up in her shining white robe and went off in silence. Not one of the Trojan women saw her go. She had a protecting divinity to guide her. When they reached Paris' superb house, the waiting women in attendance at once turned to their tasks while Helen, goddess among women, went to her lofty bedroom. There the goddess herself, laughter-loving Aphrodite, picked up a chair, carried it across the room, and put it down for her in front of Paris. Helen, daughter of Zeus who drives the storm cloud, sat down on it but refused to look her husband in the face and attacked him. So you are back from the battlefield, and I was hoping you had fallen there to the mighty warrior who was once my husband. You used to boast you were a better man than war like Menelaus, a finer spearman, stronger in the arm. Go and challenge him to fight again then, but if you take my advice, you will think twice before you offer single combat to auburn-haired Menelaus, or you may end by falling to his spear. Paris replied and said, My dear, don't say such hurtful things about me and my courage. Menelaus has just beaten me with Athene's help, but I too have gods to help me, and next time I shall win. Come, let us go to bed together and enjoy the pleasures of love. Never has such desire overwhelmed me, not even in the beginning when I carried you off from lovely Lacedaemon in the seafaring ships and spent the night making love to you in the Isle of Crenae. Never till now have I felt such desire for you or has such sweet longing overwhelmed me. He spoke and made a move towards their elaborate bed, leading her to it. His wife followed him, and there the two lay down together. Meanwhile, Menelaus was prowling through the ranks like a wild beast, trying to find godlike Paris, but not a man among the Trojans and their famous allies could point him out to the warlike Menelaus. Not that. If anyone had seen him, they would have hidden him out of friendship. They loathed him, all of them, like Black Death. Then Agamemnon, lord of men, spoke to them. Trojans, Greeks and allies... Listen to me. Menelaus has clearly won. Now give up Helen from Argos and all her property and make compensation on a scale that future generations will remember. So spoke the son of Atreus, and the Greeks all applauded. Thanks for listening to the Story Hour. That was books two and three of the Iliad by Homer. 
Uh, it was quite a joy to read these out. Some of those Greek names were incredibly hard to say, and I definitely stumbled over them and laughed and had to redo a lot of takes of this, but all in all, it was a good time. Um, next week, we're going to be starting on a new story. Um, it's a surprise, so I hope you guys tune in.